suppose the natural place to start is what is frailty? Yeah, so frailty is um, a useful concept that helps us to disentangle to some extent the heterogeneity of the older population. So we've often heard phrases like the elderly as if they're all one homogenous group of patients with shared characteristics. And of course, age is a highly heterogeneous state with people in their 60s that struggle to get out of bed without help and people in their 90s that run marathons and frailty is really trying to get into identifying people on a more individualized basis really based on what they can do and their function. Originally um, it was born out of a study of proximity to the end of life and looking at the oldest old and recognizing that even in the very old populations so of people in their 90s or even centenarians that the time to death is highly variable. So just very simply, you know, old people aren't all the same. They're different in many different ways. And frailty is one way of starting to kind of break into and understand a little bit more about where somebody is on a spectrum. And just to sort of flesh that out a little bit, so not in critical care context, but in the urgent care context, so for example, in the emergency departments, there's a growing interest in measuring frailty to help prognosticate in the ED setting. And the clinical frailty score, which we'll probably talk about a bit more in a bit, helps identify people who've got the same age, potentially even the same comorbidities, but have got different frailty levels. So CFS scores of one to three, basically single digit mortality if that uh, in the hospital stay, whereas those with a very high end of, of frailty, so seven to nine, are in between 16 to 31% inpatient mortality. And we think that's really helpful and important because it should influence the clinical decision making and management the minute the patient arrives in the hospital. You know, there has been a heavy focus on, on CFS and mortality or frailty and mortality, but that's just one manifestation of how frailty helps us understand where people are on a spectrum. So the clinical frailty score, is that how we should be assessing frailty? I know there's a number of ways, aren't there? Yeah. So yeah. is one better than another? Is one more evidence-based? There's um, not quite hundreds, but certainly uh, about 76 frailty scores, I think, when they were last uh, all put together. Some have been developed in primary care and for use in primary care settings. Some are population-level things uh, like the hospital frailty risk score, the electronic frailty index. Certainly from a, an acute hospital perspective, and particularly from a critical care perspective, the best validated tool is the clinical frailty scale. And it has the added advantage of being relatively simple and easy to calculate. So again, this is ED studies rather than critical care, but we've worked out it takes on average about a minute or so for people to complete. It's pretty democratic. It can be completed by doctors, nurses, therapists, HCAs, all sorts of different people. And particularly in the critical care context, you want something that's both reliable but also not too complicated to use. So we'd strongly recommend a CFS. You can pick whichever one you want. I'm just looking over some of the critical care studies. And they've actually, apart from one, all used the CFS. There's one that generated a frailty index, which I'll come back to in a second, and another one that used a modified frailty index. But the rest of them in the critical care context have all been based on the CFS. So just to come back to the frailty index, so the clinical frailty score was actually generated out of a cohort study, the Canadian Study of Health and Aging, which is, I don't know, 15, 20 years old now. And what they did is they used the cohort study to generate a comprehensive geriatric assessment or to describe a holistic assessment of an older population, which then gave birth to this notion of a frailty index. So essentially, you know, you've got a list of, let's say, 70 things that could be wrong with you, how many are present, and that gives you a coefficient, and the higher the coefficient, the worse your outcomes are. And that's how the frailty index works, so called cumulative deficit index, or cumulative deficit approach to frailty measurement. 
But obviously, doing a frailty index and measuring 70 items is not something you're going to be doing when you're trying to get to make a decision about critical care or acute care in, in the more general sense. So they generated the CFS from that data set and have back-validated it against the broader frailty index. So it's been shown that the pictorial clinical frailty scale um, is a good representation of the underpinning cumulative deficit approach that Rockwood originally described. Interestingly, in the critical care studies that I'm looking at, they've always dichotomized the CFS. So they've done this cutoff at five or more, which kind of is something of the antithesis of how we think of frailty in the way I described it to you at the beginning there. So the whole point of frailty is to sort of see where people are on a spectrum and try and understand the range of frailty. And the critical care studies have all used a, a kind of cutoff at five or more, which is kind of dichotomizing into frail versus not frail, which probably isn't quite the right way from a frailty perspective, but it gives us uh, some assurance at least that it does predict outcomes in critical care context. So average 30-day mortality for people with CFS scores of uh, five or more in critical care, something like 40 to 60%, 50%. Intra-ITU mortality between, four, well, one study 20%, but the rest uh, around about 40% mark. So it does seem to work in a critical care context. And what's interesting is whether that influences your clinical decision-making as an intensivist. So the fact that someone's got a high risk of dying, well, that's kind of why you guys get called anyway, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. So is, is it their risk of death that's uh, of interest when you're making critical care decisions, or is it their likely recovery afterwards? So I, I don't know if this is true. I've got in my head that uh, critical care stays something like the equivalent of your eye being asked to run a marathon. The physiological demands that it places on the body are enormous. There's high prevalence of neuropsychiatric sequelae, delirium being the most immediate and important one, but longer term sort of anxiety, depression, etc., as well as all the physical rehabilitation that goes on afterwards relating to critical illness, neuropathy and such like. So I'm thinking that if I got offered critical care, I would think twice about it unless there was a clear benefit. And I'm suspecting that for the majority of older people, particularly those with frailty, that it's going to be a pretty challenging thing for them to undergo. And I suppose, as you say, it just becomes part of the uh, overall picture that you, you weigh up of what's in this person's best interests. Yeah, and I don't know how good we are at asking that question routinely about what people want. We try, certainly within my world of sort of acute geriatrics, to incorporate some sort of measure of what matters to people and what they're trying to achieve and then use our skills as clinicians to try and work out how best to help them achieve that goal. But I don't know whether it's as commonplace a question as it should be. Can you give any examples of when frailty assessment have been kind of put in place, not necessarily just in a critical care setting, in any sort of hospital setting, and how it's kind of been used in a practical sense? I guess the bulk of my experience comes from the work we've been doing in the emergency department where over a period of some years now we've been trying to embed frailty scores in the ED. And we're getting there. It's, uh, I think we're up to about 60 or 70% coverage. That's being done at ED triage with the idea that it influences some of the initial clinical decision making. So if somebody's incredibly frail, is it sensible to do a CT head to see if they've got a subdural, knowing full well that the neurosurgical team are extremely unlikely to take them on because of their proximity to the end of life, irrespective of the subdural that may or may not be present? You know, it's work in progress. It takes time. We've been doing time series analysis or PDSA cycles, trying to see if we're influencing clinical decision making. And it looks like in about 40% of people, particularly at the more frail end of the spectrum, that we're starting to see the frailty concept influencing the clinical decision making. 
but getting that at scale and and at the pace, I guess that we need to do is is is, is really quite challenging. Part of it's the clinical decision making, but the other thing is to really try and make sure that we're asking patients what matters to them and what they want to achieve, because that's something that we don't do as well as we should. Is part of it the fact that in order to assess someone's frailty, you have to ask very pertinent questions, which you maybe wouldn't have asked otherwise, and it yeah. triggers you to think, go down that thought process? Yeah. I think, I think so. It's prompting people to ask what might be viewed as difficult, or as I prefer to call it, different questions. Because essentially, if you think about the things that we do with frailty, it's, or, or even geriatric assessment, it's essentially good quality clinical care. You know, it's providing holistic assessment. It's focusing on patient-centered outcomes. You know, it's all the things that you'd say are good clinical practice in, in any sphere of medicine. But I think with, with older people, particularly those who are the more severely frail end of the spectrum, because of the proximity to the end of life, it really kind of raises the stakes and, and it's a bit of a game changer, really, because you haven't got long to get things right for these individuals. You know, your average a 65-year-old with a CFF of seven to nine is probably in the last year or two of life once they've started to present to the acute care sector. So it's not like we've got a long time to get things right. And often they will be dying much more quickly than that. In fact, those that do die tend to die within the first three months or so of their initial presentation. So we haven't got long. And I think, you know, we're relatively comfortable as a profession and perhaps as a society thinking about end of life in the context of things like cancer, but not so much in conditions like frailty or dementia where it's been less thought of. So, you know, it's prompting people to have different conversations that they might not ordinarily be considering. Are there any pitfalls with assessing frailty? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of things really to watch out for. I might just make mention of it. The critical care guidance or implementation guidance was published by the Royal College of Physicians in response to the NICE critical care guidance on decision-making in the COVID pandemic. So that's available at criticalcarenice.org.uk. And you'll see there's a page there on frailty, which gives you some of the pitfalls and potential risks. So key one really is not to use it in people under the age of 65, because at the moment it's not been validated. Uh, the CFS specifically has not been validated in people under the age of 65. And also be very cautious in people with long-term disability. So particularly things like mental health problems, such as autism or learning disability because those people will potentially score highly on a, on a frailty scale, but the nature of their condition, i.e. that is chronic and relatively stable, means that their prognosis is going to be very, very different from somebody who's old and frail and has got multiple comorbidities which are driving their frailty. So caution in those particular populations is worth noting. So is frailty actually more important than individual comorbidities? I mean, clearly some comorbidities can be very clearly have a, have sure. a, have a poor prognosis, well, you're speaking to a geriatrician, so uh, I'm much more interested in, in, in the whole rather than the individual component parts. So for me, absolutely, uh, frailty is a really useful way of understanding the whole patient and starting to think about people holistically rather than just focusing on the particular condition. And actually, some of the work we've done in the Specialised Clinical Frailty Network has borne that out. So it's been really interesting looking at, for example, the cardiologist doing TAVI procedures on people with, you know, some degree of frailty, uh, not so much severe, but certainly some moderate degrees of frailty. And there's been an interesting debate in that sort of network about if we fix the valve, then maybe their frailty will be reversed. And, you know, that's theoretically possible. But back to my earlier point, really. 
when frailty is driven by an accumulation of deficits, when it's the dementia plus the heart failure plus the aortic stenosis plus the osteoarthritis, then you know the chances of fixing the valve, suddenly reversing this degree of frailty, which is multifaceted in nature. It's relatively slim in my view, but those studies haven't really been done. So there's some interesting research questions there. Uh, but the sort of frailty that we're talking about in old age, this accumulation of deficits, this multi-natured or multifaceted frailty doesn't really get better just by treating one particular condition. So tell me a bit more about the specialised clinical frailty network and what you've managed to achieve with that which is a national improvement collaborative that uh, uses quality improvement methods to uh, try and embed frailty-attuned care in specialities. So we've worked with critical care, with TAVI, with uh, neurosurgeons, um, all sorts of specialities, just looking at different ways of trying to embed more frailty-attuned approach within specialised services. So the critical care guys were involved last year and did some fantastic work. So there was a bit of work on risk stratification but quite a lot of work on perioperative optimization in patients undergoing laparotomies, emergency laparotomies, in response to the NILA audit, the National Emergency Laparotomy Audit. And that's where they were doing things like, you know, minimizing cholinergic burden, optimizing um, fitness before surgery wherever possible, uh, early geriatric assessment where they could achieve that. And then there's the guys at Papworth, for example, uh, who've been looking at uh, various cardiac critical care pathways. They've been doing some really fantastic work led by anaesthetists, again, doing mini geriatric assessments pre-surgery, trying to minimize cholinergic burden, optimize uh, activity, preparing people for surgery. There's a lot of information available on the Specialized Clinical Frailty Network website. So presumably the aging population means that frailty is more prevalent. Is that right? Yeah, so um, the prevalence is uh, probably increasing, as, uh, as you say, with, with the increasing number of older people. Um, it's worth reminding ourselves, though, that the vast majority of older people are living fulfilling and healthy and relatively independent lives. I think the last time I looked, it was something like 80% of people over the age of 65 are living healthy, fulfilling lives. And we tend to see a very skewed population in secondary care, particularly in the urgent care context. So, yeah, uh, frailty is going to be, uh, is already and is increasingly going to be a problem of our time or an opportunity of our time, if you prefer also an opportunity to actually keep people well for longer so there's interesting work being done certainly in the early stages of frailty so mild to moderate well mainly mild frailty to try and delay the progression through to moderate or severe frailty i think once people are entering into the severe end of the frailty spectrum it's quite difficult to reverse that and certainly studies i've looked at suggest that it's pretty much an irreversible state once you're in the severe frailty category but if you can get people earlier on either when they're pre-frail or uh, only mildly frail then there's opportunities through interventions such as exercise and nutritional support social connectivity etc which uh, have the potential to slow any deterioration or decline given that the population or the prevalence of frailty is increasing should the prevalence of frailty in an ICU cohorts of patients increase as well? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an important question. So it's back to some of the things we were discussing earlier is we know that frailty predicts the risk of dying following a critical care uh, episode. And I think I mentioned figures of 50 to 60% mortality, but that equally means that 40 to 50% of people are surviving critical care. I think it's back to giving patients the information to allow them to make an informed decision. 
So if we give people the data and we explain that, you know, you've got a one in two chance of coming out of critical care, the sequelae are going to include, let's say, neuropsychiatric problems, uh, a year of rehabilitation to get back to some normal level of function. Is that something that you would be willing to undergo? And if we as clinicians have got a condition in a patient which we think we can get better following through critical care, then um, I think that's the rationale for bringing people through. What I think we have to be really careful of is just simply using frailty as a sort of rationing tool, because as you mentioned earlier yourself, you know, mortality is perhaps not the most important outcome following critical care, ironically, you know, but given it's such a high mortality environment, you know, it's not, it's not a discriminatory outcome. It's the ability to benefit and achieve perhaps more patient-centered outcomes that we should be focusing upon. So moving forward, what's the future of frailty research? There's been a huge amount done on frailty as a sort of, um, like I was saying earlier, risk stratification tool and ability to prognosticate and descri- describing outcomes based on frailty. And I think we've got to the stage now where we kind of understand, broadly speaking, the prevalence and incidence of frailty. It, certainly in the acute care context, we're starting to understand what the outcomes are likely to be. And I think the time is to move much more towards interventions and responses to that. So simply describing a phenomena doesn't get it any better or make it go away or, or improve outcomes relating to that. So there's a growing number of studies that are now trying to respond to frailty. Uh, so in the general hospital context, we've been looking at how you take what is a well-evidenced approach, so-called comprehensive geriatric assessment, essentially holistic care for older people, and try and generalize that across, across the whole hospital. These are early days and we don't have all the answers yet. So most of the geriatric studies have been looking at frailty units or acute geriatric wards. Obviously, with the growing prevalence of frailty, not every older person with frailty is going to get onto a geriatric ward. So how do you deliver CGA in intensive care, for example? And again, in critical care world, I think a lot of the work's been mainly descriptive rather than looking at interventions to improve outcomes. With the Specialised Clinical Frailty Network, which has not been so much a research uh, endeavour, more of a quality improvement programme, there's been quite a lot of work looking at how you can optimise outcomes for older people with frailty in the context of critical care. So looking at minimising cholinergic burden, uh, maximising rehabilitation intra-ITU as well as post-ITU, nutritional support and so on. So I think it's starting to influence how people deliver care in the wide range of contexts, but also including critical care. A lot to go on. It's food for thought, isn't it? There are opportunities. I think that, and that's the, the key thing, is just not to be nihilistic. You know, you can look at this data and say, look, you know, if you've got a one in two chance of not surviving, let's not bother. Or you can look at it and say, you know, this patient's got a lot going for them. They've got things they want to achieve. They've got important outcomes they want to achieve. And we could potentially help them. We need to adjust how we deliver our care to reflect their frailty, their comorbidities, their cognitive impairment and learn and adapt because this is the population of the future isn't it it's not like you're only going to see 50 year olds on critical care moving forward 